0: This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not treat anything in this episode as financial or other advice. The hosts and guests may hold positions in some of the companies and securities discussed. Remember to seek independent professional advice relating to your own circumstances before making any investment decisions.
1: Trolling, trolling for 10 vaggers. Trolling, trolling
0: for 10 (laughs) vaggers. Hi, thanks for tuning in. I'm Joel.
1: And this is Sam. And welcome to Trawling for 10 Days. This podcast is about learning how to identify high conviction opportunities in small caps on the ASX. We talk to the experts in the space to help you learn how to speculate and protect your
0: capital longer term. Our guest today is Ivan Tanner. Ivan's a self-described conviction investor who has many years of experience successfully investing in small cap and speculative companies. In today's discussion, we cover the psychology of money, Ivan's approach and experience in sussing out company management, and lots of other interesting considerations when putting your money into an early stage or small cap company.
1: It's such a pleasure to have you here, Ivan. Um, from someone who remembers starting out in this caper, you know, almost a decade ago, I, I do remember uh, you being quite sharing with some of your thoughts on on sort of the more speculative investing when I was just a A young, sort of foolish man in my 20s. I remember talking about Gage Roads Brewers and GRB and a few others. So, yeah, it's it's really nice to have you on.
2: Thank you so much.
0: All right. Um, And can you give us a bit of a background, Ivan, into what got you interested in the financial markets and and investing? Um, Was it something you had professional experience in or just a curiosity?
2: Uh, Look, a couple of things. Um, I think my father would have been responsible when I was 14 years old. My brother Ron was 16. Our father. Opened up a share trading account for us, which is pretty bizarre. But, uh, and uh, we had a family broker, Morehouse and Milner, and uh, we would place orders for shares. Um, and we actually got the tips, not from my father, but from my father's accountant, who was a, a, a share trader, um, amongst other things. And in those days, there were a couple of editions of of the news, the morning and the afternoon edition. In the afternoon edition, you'd find out if you'd made money or not compared to the morning edition. And, uh, you know, we'd get home from school and and start trading stocks. Uh, You know, stocks were traded offshore oil, Australian national industries, bounty oil. Anyway, that was all going along terrifically until my brother bought Tasmanex at $50 um, that blew up at $2 and then that all ended. All the accounts were closed. He had to mow lawns for five years. And I presume my father covered the debt to the stockbroker and it was never discussed. Um, Wow. So that was sort of an
0: all in, was it? That you were just picking individual stocks and?
2: Yeah, just little stocks. Yeah, offshore oil, you know, eight cents go to nine cents. Um, Oh, really exciting. We've made a profit. Fantastic. Extremely exciting. Um, You know, when you're 14 years old and you're making that sort of money compared to, you know, I'm not, it wasn't big money, but it was big money compared to pocket money, put it that way. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's where I got my first taste for investing and thinking, wow, you can make money here. Um, But from my background, I have been involved in the music industry and uh, act as a consultant for 20 or so venues in Adelaide booking entertainment. I did do an economics degree majoring in accounting, um, but was attracted to the music industry because I didn't actually want to get a real job working as an accountant. (laughs) And manage. I'm a musician, a keyboard player, so I managed to you know play in bands, hang around lots of clubs. We used to tour Sydney, know all the old clubs in Sydney, and uh, that was terrific. Um, So yeah, that's pretty much what happened. Took a quite a long break from the from the share market, and um, I think around about two thousand and five, I decided I needed to actually start making some money apart from doing a personal services job which was basically like booking musicians and and being on a staff roster
0: and were you sort of dabbling in stocks and things along the way whilst you were working that industry
2: no 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 uh, for the 32 years i didn't do any share trading whatsoever nothing absolutely nothing
0: so i'm guessing would have changed a bit just in terms of the market dynamics in that time as well when you're probably calling through to your broker to do trades
2: initially and absolutely you'd You'd be on the phone and you wouldn't find out if you'd made a you know, profit until later that afternoon and then you'd wait for the next morning and, uh, you know, get the, the newspaper again. So, yeah. And we would go into the stock exchange as well. So you actually had the physical stock exchange in, in, in Adelaide like they had in all capital cities. And you could actually stand up. Uh, on the first level, there was the viewing platform. So it's a bit like you'd have a seat and look down at all the brokers, you know, swapping bits of paper for different trades. So, yeah, it was... Yeah, I, did, I didn't
0: realize there, there used to be a stock exchange in every state. That's incredible.
2: Yeah, there was little Adelaide Stock Exchange. It's I've actually been in there recently because it's been converted into a, a function venue.
0: All right. So a big gap between your two different periods in the market. What was it that triggered you to get back in after that thirty-something year break?
2: Well, look, there was a there was a few triggers. Um, I put three thousand dollars into an AMP super fund thinking that would be a really good thing to do. And um, they proceeded to lose money every year. So I went back and, you know, said to the, um, you know, rang up AMP and said, I want my money back. And they said, well, yeah, we can give you back half of it because we gave the rest to the advisor, <laughs> which <laughs> which you'll get back in 20 years' time once he's been paid off. And that that kind of got me pretty angry and worked out very early that, you know, the game was against you if you gave money to normal super funds and um i'd managed to have some savings i'd saved up and i had three hundred thousand dollars so i'd set up a self-managed super fund and thought i should start trading shares so um i started to get some tips from fat profits and that was pretty bad <laughs> so the share tipping service or site yes. from, i don't know if it's still around but that's it. yeah <laughs> Yeah, so this you know, my around. portfolio would go from three hundred back to two eighty, back to two seventy, go to three ten, go to three twenty, you know, back to three hundred. And this is happening for a couple of years, and I said, Oh, this is you know, I'm not getting anywhere with this approach. because um, I'm always looking for a, a new approach um, to making money. So I was very, very frustrated. But fortunately in nineteen ninety six I'd bought two investment properties. Um, 100% borrowed money. I'd never borrowed money to buy shares and I had borrowed 100% to buy these investment properties. And um, I paid back the loans and put, I think I got 400000 from that and put $700,000 into one stock.
0: This is your first individual foray, is it, after the shipping yes. newsletter? Yes, wow. yeah.
2: I thought I'd go all in in one stock with $700,000. What was the stock? Uh, the stock was Customers Limited, which uh, ran ATM shares, which, which you, you would I not invest in point. ATM shares yeah, well, <laughs> now. I think
0: we have to ask in, what inspired you of
2: all of the stocks
0: no to right. choose that one to go all in on.
2: Well, it's funny because my brother was living in Sydney at that stage and there was a guy that used to renovate old ATM machines and resell them and he had a bit of a business happening with that and ATM machines were going in all different locations and somehow found, I think customers came along, they somehow found about Customers Limited. So I started doing research and through my extensive research, I'd actually worked out that the banks would get the $2 charge, but there was change in the legislation, which took about five years to come through where they decided The deployer would get the $2. So customers limited originally would only get 30 cents from a $2 transaction. The, I'm not sure if it's the reserve bank or a government instrumentality, turned that around and said, no, the deployer. So customers was an individual deployer. So suddenly instead of waiting for a month to get the 30 cents from the bank, they were getting the $2 as the deployer. And so I knew there was going to be a significant revaluation of the stock at that stage and thought, well, you know, don't die wondering um, if you're going to actually go into a stock and you've found a really good reason to go into it, um, go hard.
0: Okay, so, 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 so you'd sort of done your research. You liked the general thesis to it and you thought there was going to be some inflection point where that revenue was going to really change and that the market hadn't
2: cottoned on yet. Absolutely. But that uh, I hadn't read many books about share trading or or What to really do was just, uh, I guess, an innate kind of thing I'd worked out by myself Um, to go into this stock. I hadn't read any broker reports. I read nothing. I just just (laughs) did it myself. Yeah. So, anyway, look, talking about money, the four hundred thousand dollars I made from the two houses, um, because it was a hundred percent borrowed money, and because I'd actually hadn't worked to to, to earn that money I just it was the bank's money hundred percent borrowed for the houses 100 percent of the purchase price when I bought them. my emotional attachment to the gains um, were really zero because I you know hadn't had to work at a day job to make that money so as a consequence I'd made the decision I said, look if I lose that four hundred thousand dollars will that change my life and yeah it would have been a shitty thing to happen but I was prepared to lose that money so I actually thought through that decision before I did that. Um, and
1: and did you turn that one into a profit, Ivan? Because I do remember that going into admin or something happened. It, it did do well early on, but then it it didn't deliver the the expectation and the hype that I think that you would foresee with that RBA change. Yeah,
2: I mean, well, very what very happened well. was that the share was originally seven cents. Then I then they did a ten for one, so it was I bought the equivalent of seven cents, and then that was seventy cents. Actually, got to three dollars. And I think my wife said when they got to $3, you've got to sell some of those shares. You've got to be a connoisseur out of execution. And I said, you don't know a thing about shares. Um, I'm not selling any um, because they're going to $5. And I think a broker rang me up and offered to buy them at $3. And I said, no, they're going to $5. But anyway, they did crash and, uh, they came back to two dollars, and very fortunately, I'd read a book because I'd started researching charting uh, patterns, and I'd read a book by Thomas Bolkowski, which is the Encyclopedia of Chart Patterns. And there was this, you know, really um, amazing chart called the Dead Cat Bounce, and I thought, wow, that's a that's a really good chart. That looks. Like what's going to happen to customers at two (laughs) dollars? And I just remember selling my whole position out at two dollars on the dead cat bounce on two computers over a couple of days. I was a nervous wreck, Um, and then they went back to seventy cents.
0: Right, so seventy cents up to two dollars and all the way back again. But you managed to get out of the way.
2: Yeah. So so the seven hundred went to two million. So I was like, oh, you know, okay. Got to start now. Do you remember what's the time
0: frame that was that, that that appreciation happened?
2: I think it was over, well, that's the other, I don't know whether it's, I'll call it dumb luck. It was in the middle of the global financial crisis. So if I'd been fully invested, I would have probably got trashed by about 50%, but instead, you know, my portfolio tripled through that time. Um, so that would have been over a period of about probably three years.
0: Okay, so effectively all in a one stock over a very challenging market time to get quite an amazing return.
2: Yeah, which is totally the wrong advice or wrong thing to do. Um, everyone would say that is just a terrible thing to put all your eggs in one basket. But if you read Buffett, he says, look, if, you are, if you're going to be convicted and you, you really believe in it, well, you know, technically, you know, you can take on 100% of one, one stock.
1: So, Ivan, you did what uh, very few of our guests have said, is you you made a lot of money early on uh, and to take nothing away from your risk proportion and and your your fact you went balls deep on on said stock. I mean, that's terrific. But what did you do
2: next? You probably thought you were bulletproof, right? No, I didn't think I was bulletproof because I didn't really know. I hadn't actually researched any other stocks at that stage. And I thought, oh, okay, I've got $2 million. What do I, oh, What do I do now? I like, really had no idea. But fortunately, I'd met um, a guy called Sam Orr, who was part of the boat fund, and I met him on the hot copper thread of customers. And very fortunately, he was 10 times smarter than me at share investing. And I've got a, you know, a, a, I suppose a, a thesis that, if you can find someone smarter than you, um, yeah, listen to them. And he was at that stage because I was quite inexperienced. And that was in the small cap, micro cap boom. And I just wrote off his picks and we started chatting every night for a couple of years. And there was, you know, MTU at 80 cents that went to $10, you know, uh, Vocus. So what actually happened with Vocus, I'd been chatting to Sam for a couple of years and said, oh, why don't we go and interview James Spensley from Vocus? They were, you know, very early beginning and and you're I was in Adelaide, he's in Queensland, and I met him, I guess, almost on an investment Tinder date, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> two years in the making of conversations every day. I said, oh, you're Sam, I'm Ivan, hi, how are you? This is, you know, in North Sydney outside the Vocus building. Let's go and interview James Spensley and, you know, we didn't know what. What we're doing Sam had a well, he knew what he was doing. He had a folder about 10 inches thick of questions and sat down and, yeah, interviewed the you know James Spenceley. So,
0: and this and was when Vocus was very just just listed, was it just, just listed?
2: Out. Someone oh, who's the gone hot copper that Allman Allman had called it at 30 cents or 40 cents, and we found it at 80 cents and then started buying. And then, of course, it you know. Went up, got you know, it was quite substantial in its appreciation. I think it eventually got to five dollars. But the other, um, interesting thing is that when you're trying to get big positions in these micro cap shares, it's very, very difficult to actually build a position. And I always like to be confronted with a problem and try to work out a solution. So, what I did, I went to James Spencey and said, Look, if you ever, you know. Know anyone that wants to sell any stock or have you, you know, someone wants to get out, please let me know. Well, six months later, I think the dollar fifty was the stock, and he said, Look, I've got a million shares I need for a tax thing, I can do a deal. So I would do the off market transfer, and I got a friend, musician friend in Sydney, to drop off a bank check, and he picked up the transfer. So we're kind of acting like brokers, but doing it ourselves. And, and this might be off
0: the MD of a company as well then, no less.
2: Yeah. And, and I'm doing this all just with no playbook. I'm just doing it because I'm just working out how to do it.
0: And so that was, had you, um, just to go back to the money you talked about that you made initially um, on customer, did you treat the windfall any differently? You said that the original 700,000, you weren't worried about losing. Once you had 2 million or more after these other um, ventures, were you thinking any differently about the money at
2: that stage? Um, I was, that's a really good question. I thought I could have a chance of building quite a substantial portfolio of good, of of good stocks. And so I was possibly a little bit more protective and thinking, you know, I think I better diversify. So I think the next stock I actually bought was Big Air and, was the proud owner of two stocks now um, and took quite a large position in big air early on at about 18 cents. And once again, I would do a a procedure called the email test, send an email to the CEO asking him an intelligent question and see how long they take to reply. Well, Jason Ashton replied on a Saturday afternoon and I'd sent it on the Saturday morning. I thought, shit, he works. You know, he's, he's obviously on it. And, um, sort of came up with um, um, you know a few intelligent questions and, and built a relationship with Jason and then started following the story and started understanding the story, what they were doing. Basically, they were acquiring companies um, and the thesis for Big Air, there was another listed company called Clever Communications, which was failing, which was trying to do the same thing as Big Air. And it was pretty obvious that Big Air at some stage were going to take out Clever Communications. So yeah
0: right and so what did you um maybe to go back to when you met sam and you said he knew a lot more about small caps and microcap companies than you did do you remember any of the learnings that you sort of had earlier on there and the sort of any aha moments where you were thinking oh if only i'd
2: known that maybe i'm uh, underdoing i did obviously know about PEs, and and yeah i did a degree in accounting and in economics i I knew i had a basic knowledge i wasn't complete complete newbie um but Companies like MTU, you know, they were trading on eight times and they were a growing company. It was a good theme with the telecommunications. And I started to to understand about themes in the market a lot more closely. So if you go into stocks, if you can find or anticipate a theme that's going to happen over the next 12 to 18 months... Um, they, I think that's a really good good way to go. Just hearing that and something we talked about briefly earlier in the episode was Gage Roads Brewery. Which was a theme-based investment because way back then, um, I can't remember what year it was, but it was maybe...
1: I'm just going back and I think it was 20, 2011, 2012. Yeah, 2011, 2012. They, 20... they had Woolworths own 25% that's of it. the stock. So it was like... You know, no downside sort of thing. I think that was the thesis for everyone. Wasn't yeah, it?
2: and and think about craft brewing at that stage. Gage Roads, craft brewer. I think someone had bought uh, Little Creatures in Perth, and there was this. Oh, craft brewing is how big can craft be? How much of the market they're going to take? This is a popular theme. People and everyone wanted to own part of a brewery, or every male, maybe I should say. So, so. We built that invest approached that investment on um, getting part of a theme. So what happened was that at that stage, I'd met Ron Shamgar and Sam. I met Ron Shamgar at a conference and Ron, Sam and I would work together as a team, not go to an office each day. We're all in different states. And um, we wanted to get a position in Sam, in Gage Roads Brewing, but, you know, maybe you could buy 10 grand's worth if you're lucky. So was trading at seven cents craft trend was starting to percolate stocks really a liquid, no way of buying meaningful stock. So what we do, I think Ron rang up the CEO and said, you know, is there anyone that's got any stock? Um, And we determined it's too risky to go through a broker because if a broker got stock, um, what, and he thought it was cheap, maybe you wouldn't get the stock. So you wanted to keep it confidential. So I just, Basically said to Ron, let's fly to Perth to the brewery and try and do a deal with the potential seller. So we flew over to the brewery, met the seller, had lunch in an Italian restaurant. Um, Didn't do the deal at lunch. Got a call just before we got on the plane. They wanted seven and a half. We were going to pay seven for 20 million shares. And they said, look, you can have it for 7.25. Anyway, this is all happy but how do we consummate the deal well sam the lawyer drafted up an agreement to sell and i organized an off-market transfer anyway by the following week the signed transfer still hadn't come through by fax and the share price for memory had hit 14 cents and i felt sick with anxiety that the deal wasn't going to happen i was absolutely convinced that oh well you know we've done everything but these guys over there just you know they're not going to send over the transfer now. Uh, but then late one afternoon, I don't know if you remember faxes, they were <laughs> around a little while ago, and the noise they'd make as, the, as it would come out of the uh, document tray, this sort of crunching <laughs> and this peeping, its, peeping out was this signed transfer document. At the, um,
0: at the $0.07 cent price, you'd agree? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and who I'll was the that. counterparty to that? Sorry, who, who were you um, purchasing um, the shares from?
2: He was a, Peter. He was a property investor in Perth. At a okay, so just at a large, somebody else,
0: just a shareholder on the register. Yeah,
2: but he was yeah. he was the overhang because people had heard that he wanted to sell the stock um, and we just managed to go out and do it. So so a lesson from that is just if you want to do something, you just got to go out and get on a plane, meet the person and, and give it your best shot if something's really important. So that was a good lesson.
0: And so I suppose more generally, um, what, what are the sort of ways, you mentioned the thematic approach and some of the first stocks you mentioned there of MTU, Vocus, Big Air, they were all interestingly sort of tech and internet-based ones. And we're seeing that theme in the market now with some of the high-growth internet-based stocks. How do you go about identifying what those themes or thematics might be? Do you sort of peruse the mainstream media and things or is it a bit of sort of more intuition and observation of what's going on around you?
2: Um, I, how I identify stocks, and there's so much free information, um, there's a number of ways, and or a number, there's hundreds of ways to identify stocks. But, well, I'll start with the themes first. That, that was your question, how do you identify the themes? I think the themes is more like a Peter Lynch approach just being aware of what's happening, reading what's going on in society, um, where problems, where companies, what what uh, problems companies are trying to solve. So, obviously, I identified a stock a couple of years ago. Bid with artificial intelligence, um, you know, reading bills automatically. Health. There's a lot of talk about health. You know, health tech solving the problems in hospitals, making hospitals more efficient. So health tech became a theme. Um, so you've just got to, I don't know, just think about what what's going to happen in in the future and and try and solve it that way. As far as finding ideas for stocks, a, a really good way is to uh, subscribe to fund managers' newsletters, um, which I think I subscribe to twelve, and they're they're quite free to talk about the stocks and you, you okay, he's bought that stock and that's done well. And, you know, he's bought that stock and she's bought this stock. And then you can sort of marry that up with um, listening or watching live. While, you know, fund managers talking about stocks on, you know, every Friday and start reading their thesis for their stocks. Um, I think it's much better to take that approach than, going to a broker and say, hey, what do you reckon's a hot stock? I don't think that's the right approach, um, getting tips from brokers or or brokers referring because they're conflicted. I'm not saying fund managers aren't conflicted, but fund managers, I assume, do a lot more work on stocks than brokers do. I suppose an important part of that as well, though, is to sort of assess the performance of the
0: of the fund and the stock that they're mentioning and use that as well
2: over time. Absolutely. It, to sort of see what... And there's a lot of funds I subscribe to and I delete them off my mailing list because, like I say, you guys are crap. You're not performing. And why would I waste my time reading your newsletter now? Yeah. So, Yeah. And so I guess once you've identified
0: maybe a a company or a stock, whether it's a fund managers mentioned it or somewhere else, where do you start out once you're sort of looking into and what what things do you first check to sort of see this is a company you might want to explore more or, or is there anything that you will see at a very cursory glance and go, no, that's, that's it, I'm not even looking at that one?
2: Ah, okay. So so you can start from the first um, position of assumption that all CEOs are corporate criminals unless proven otherwise. Um, so it's easy just to type in their name and put ASIC or put fraud and I do that with all CEOs and directors. You're just trying to work out if they're all completely clean or not. And invariably, not all the time, but, you know, 10% of the time something will pop up and they've been part of a failed company. So that's the first part of um, of the due diligence, just to, to work out whether you're going to wipe those those guys out altogether. The second part is um, reading all the news or sensitive news released to the market over the last five years. So you can go back and you can actually back test what they've said. You can say, well, you said five years ago you were going to do this, but after you're going to do this within the next 12 months, well, have a guess what? I back tested it and you didn't do that. You took three years to do it or you never did it. So there's a lot of information that you can work out by actually just reading all the news releases as well.
0: And you mentioned earlier the um, an email test that you do.
2: could you elaborate on that at all? You said if they respond, that's a positive. Oh, look, it's, it, it's very, very simplistic and very, very basic. But you can infer information from the time they respond. I'm not saying it's the only thing you want to do. It's, but I think Vaughan, Vaughan Byron from MTU, his response was 6.30am on a Monday morning. So I know the guy obviously is working and getting up at that time and going through his emails before he starts his day. So I'm presuming he's a hard worker. I'm not saying he's an efficient worker. Um, so that gives me a little bit of a clue. And it also gives you a uh, uh, how the how they respond to your question or whether they just brush you off and just say, no, you just, you know, why should I answer this? And, you know, some people don't even respond. It's very, very basic, but you get some feedback at least, at least in, instead of no feedback. Okay. And is there anything that you sort of learned from dealing with management over the
0: years or like communicating with them? Have you found that you've had the wool put over your eyes by them telling you one
2: thing and something different happening or change your approach? Um, I think, look, the best, the, the best way to assess management is to basically sit down with them. I much prefer to sit down with management if you can and just work out how they talk and if they're a reasonable person and and make a character judgment on, you know, who they are by sitting and talking like, like we do in everyday life. You say, well, that, you know, he seems like a good guy and he, he knows what he's talking about and he's respectful and he chats back. He's not. You're trying to look for a CEO that's very capable and that's very, very passionate. So, you know, obviously you look at the how much they're paying themselves or how many staff options, you know, um, or performance rights. You go through all that and you can find out a lot about management through that information. Um, and it's only one part of the company that you're looking for, but it, he, he's, he's heading up the, the ship, so he's got to know how to relate to people. Is I spoke to James Spenceley and he said, look, 40% of my time I spend in public relations, um, talking about the company, promoting the company. Um, and it was clear early on James Spenceley, a lot of people liked James in the organization. You could see that in the office. There was a relaxed feeling around the office and it was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was good.
1: Just sort of hearing all this, and some absolutely terrific nuggets. And I guess if I'm listening to this, and um, I know that you've mentioned some really great names like Vocus. Um, did you mention Altium? I think you. Did not online. yet, not yet.
2: But I, I oh, can. Right. I so can. I
1: mean, and I know that we were on EML together, yeah. and I, I wondered whether I should mention this because I know I heard Ron Shemgar talking about this again. And um, yeah, geez, um, I wish I still held that one, but. When, when do you? When do you? <laughs> that's right. At least we can both admit. When do you sell these things? What 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 are your techniques for, for holding on and not selling when stocks are increasing?
2: Yeah. Well, look. There's a. <sighs> wow. That's a really big question. Um, I'd like to, at this stage I'd like to mention a book which is I think the best book I've ever read, and I'll I'll quote from the book. Um, it's called The Art of Execution by Lee Freeman Shaw. And um, his title of his book is The Art of Execution, How the World's Best Investors Get It Wrong and Still Make Millions. And so so this guy um, went through over a period of spanning seven years from June 2006 to 2013. He examined 1,866 investments representing the total of 30,000 trades made by 45 of the world's top investors, and you think, oh, okay, you yeah, know, whatever. And then he says, I had given each of these leading investors between twenty and $150 million to invest for my best idea funds with strict instructions that they could only invest in the 10 stocks. Anyway, a lot of information comes through the book, but I'll refer back to the connoisseur. How do you know when to sell when a share's going up? And the problem we've all got psychologically is that we see a profit and we go, oh, you know, see, I just want to take that profit. You know, I just, yeah, I don't, I don't want to lose that profit. So he talks about the raiders. So he categorises, I think there's six different categories of investors and these relate back to the money he gave these guys and then he categorised who they were. And this is with real money. And the raiders, they're terrified of getting caught and losing everything. So he calls it a sad case of what you called premature evacuation <laughs> which is uh, when we're selling too early so i think from experience and you guys probably would have read about 10 baggers is you know 10 baggers can take a long time and i think if you've got a stock that's really good and you want to be discouraged from not staying the journey unless the thesis changes. And there's no reason why you can't own the same stock for 10 to 15 years. If the stock is going to continue in its trajectory. But what he also says is you can consider being a connoisseur, which I referred back to before is taking some money off the top because the position in your portfolio is getting too big. If it's, you know, a 10 bagger. Um, I don't, you know, I'm sort of fifty in, fifty out on that one because I think if you've got a in a really good trade and it's going with you and it ends up at fifty percent of your portfolio, this is me personally, but I'm a I'm a all-in conviction type guy.
0: Do you
1: find that along the journey that your criteria has to change? We I remember a previous guest, um, Alan Edmonds, talking about well, you know, you have to reassess what you got into it at in the first place, and, and has the milestones been hit, and am I now revising those expectations because certainly if you if they've hit all the milestones you had earlier on, then it's almost like it's too it's it is too good to be true, and you, and you would sell some, wouldn't you?
2: If they're your milestones, um, you know, good cases out, and we Andrew Tan found out him at thirty cents, and we said, oh, that well, looks pretty good. And we started buying at 80 cents, and we always dreamed that one day it might get to five dollars. Wouldn't that be incredible? Wouldn't that be amazing? And Ron Sam and I used to say, "Wow, five dollars out here. Five dollars. Anyway, got to 250, and I think it churned for between 220 and 250 for about 15 months. And what investors need to understand is that if you're a convicted investor, you need to put up with a stock churning for a couple of years, because it may very well churn for a couple of years and do nothing. May go backwards, but if you're convicted in the actual thesis of the company and management's doing, saying you know, doing what they say they're doing, you just say, well, I'm a long-term investor. I've I haven't got. Uh, my money mightn't be working for me at the moment because it's, it's, um, you know, just churning. It's not doing anything. Uh, But human psychology will say, oh, you know, 12 months, you know, out him's 250, you know, doing nothing. Brokers ring you up. Did you go into that float? Made 20% here. Someone else said I made 30% here. Everyone's saying, and your stock's just dead doing nothing. People probably don't sort of understand that or, or not what well, I'm saying, they, they need to understand that this is what you have to go through if you are a convicted investor.
1: It's very timely because I think you've hit a nail on the head because in the ever-present world of social media and and noise, um, you know, opportunity cost becomes a huge barometer, I suppose. FOMO.
2: It's the FOMO barometer. You know, like people were saying, I made all this money and you're just sitting there in this dead stock. It's doing nothing. So that it, so that brings me back to a psychological, uh, I think, approach to investing. You need to know, or well, it's helpful to know where you sit psychologically with money and how you feel about money. And I read a pretty good book maybe a couple of months ago called uh, Happy Money by a guy called Ken Honda, Japanese number one best-selling personal development guru, teaches you how to achieve a better peace of mind when it comes to money. Um, You know, too often money is a source of fear, stress and anger. Um, You know, money's got the ability to change your life, but if you go into the stock market and you say I just so much want to make a lot of money you're probably so much going to lose a lot of money if that's your only only way only reason for going into the market
0: I think that's really interesting that cycle psycholo- like the psychological awareness of where you where you sit in, in the scheme of things absolutely do you think you've um your other professional life experience sort of gave you any advantages or did you draw anything from yeah, you know, maybe to put the unrelated career but did that give you any skills that were applicable to what you do now with investing
2: um i think my attitude towards money was helped by being a musician because there's a lot of things in the world that are really really good that aren't associated with money so I mean, I play the piano and I get a huge amount of enjoyment out of playing the piano. Played in bands for years, play for myself now. I play guitar as well. And I think if you can say, well, look, money's not everything. It's good. It's it's great to make some money and would be terrific to make a bit more money. But it's not something to be completely obsessed with because if you're obsessed with making money, and you're not actually doing the hard yards, you just want to make money in the stock market, you're probably going to pick up some really bad tips or you're going to suffer from too much FOMO and it could be extremely a, a stressful experience. So it's, it's like a path on any journey. You, you really need to work out a way, and there's a thousand different ways, You know, tens of thousands of different ways in the share market how to make money, many, many different styles. And if you can find a style that kind of sits comfortably on your attitude or your psychology towards money and your personality, um, I think that's a really good start. I think
0: that that's interesting because you sort of, you mentioned your style has changed a little bit by the sound of it from an all-in, just one, picking one stock to being a little bit more diversified. Do you, do you think that your approach will change in the future as well or has it changed since you sort of talked about those stories as well?
2: Well, I... My problem was I made you know I've started off with a base of two million and have made considerably more than that now. And I started having I'm an all-in guy, and I'm thinking, how do I manage all this money? So my style of investing um, with a much larger amount of money to play with, um I started making some really, really bad calls because I thought, gee, I've got to be more diversified, I've got a much, much bigger lump of capital now and started investing in stocks and you know quite a number of stocks blew up um fortunately i've still made more money than i lost um but i became i started to think about it and thought well gee if i'm going to keep going down this track um yeah this could get could get serious <laughs> like i might blow up all my capital um so I made a decision to go on a quest to find fund investors better than myself that were outperforming me as far as my returns were going. And I had some an amazing returns for the first five or six years and then they sort of came back a bit, went down again, went up again and decided to find, you know, the best quality fund managers to outsource my capital and then start again with, you know, $500,000 basically is what I'm aiming f- to do now as I've just started again and not worry about the other money I've made. All oh, right, So just yeah, really reset, your- yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I don't actually want to be a fund manager, but um, I became one not meaning to become a fund manager and I'm not equipped to, to manage, you know, larger amounts of capital because it's pretty much a full-time job. Um, and that's where the allocation of capital um, comes into play. So what would happen, because we're in small caps and we're allocating large amounts of capital. Yeah, it's great buying the stocks, but you've also got illiquid positions. And so I think gauge roads got to actually got to about 28 cents and, you know, we all sold out at 22 cents and got all that money. That was fantastic. But if you've got a large position and it hasn't worked out for you, you're, you're basically stuck in the stock. So, so managing $10,000 is different from managing $100,000 is different from managing a million dollars. Yeah, a whole new, whole new approach. So, And you have to learn that if you're going to manage that capital properly. Whereas I had no idea about that before. I just thought, oh, yeah, got this and then you do this. How hard could that be? That's
0: something that's really interesting, yeah, the different approach that's needed just by the... Yeah, so,
2: so I ended up having very large positions in stocks and fortunately um, the stocks I did choose to put large amounts of capital in did actually work out. But, uh, yeah, so I was fortunate in that respect, but that, you know, could have easily gone the other way.
1: Ivan, can you mention, uh, can you think of a position where you knew the trade was going against you, and, and you and your gut sort of screaming out to you? Yeah, you know, time to exit. What what have, what have you learned? Are there some situations where it has gone badly? Or-
2: okay, so it's a yeah, that's a really good question. It's a double-edged sword. So so my situation, as much as you get to know management and say yeah, I can talk to James and talk to you know, uh, talk to um, Ashton and and the guys in different companies, um, you, it's very easy to suffer from confirmation bias, personal bias. Uh, you know, you don't want to sell the stock because you have separation anxiety because you build up a relationship. So that has been probably one of the difficulties I've had with investing, building up personal relationships, knowing all about the stock, knowing management, getting close to management, getting a feel for everything. And then saying, Oh, you know, when the stock pulls back, you're thinking, Oh oh no, give them a go. I'll, I'll keep with it. So I've, basically psychologically said, look, I could have all these great relationships with these people, but have a guess what, you know, I'm, they can be dropped just as easily and I can just sever them and forget about these people. <laughs> and, and that's, that's difficult, but I've made that decision now. Um, just because I've been in a stock and I've met the CEO six times and I've gone to meetings and all that. Hey, I'm moving on. See you later. I think that's a really good point because
1: you know, it's, you're taking the emotion out, and in in a sector and industry where you can easily come to presentations and you meet the management and, and you think they're charismatic and you can Correct. pull in spell their charm. I think what you've mentioned is kind of like a philosophy. You are at war with everyone out Correct. there, and and you've got to take no prisoners. So, but that's yeah, very I difficult that's,
2: to do because you're working oh, against absolutely. your psychological position. Um, And I've had to work really, really hard through some pretty hard lessons um, to come to this conclusion. Now, I'll reference this with another position, um, knowing that you're investing in rubbish, and that was another thing I meant. meant You can make money out of rubbish um, in the share market and don't be too proud to invest in a dog shit share in a momentum trade. Just allocate your percentage of capital accordingly. So one of the best trades I had was in a really terrible, horrible, disgusting company called Freedom Insurance. Um, so these guys had set up this insurance, and these you know they've got people in boiler rings that would boiler rooms that would ring up people, sell them insurance, funeral insurance, all sorts of stuff. Came out. Floated, I think, 30 cents, and they had three profit upgrades within 12 months. And I went, okay. So I went into this trade, but I actually had worked out my exit from the trade before I went in the trade. So I said, I'm going to sell this time next year, just before the results come out, and I'm going to ride this stock It was a momentum trade and no matter what happens, I'll be selling before I think the February results come out because it's a terrible stock to be in. Well, went from $0.30 to I think got to $0.90, had actually sold out, um, put all the reasons why I sold out on hot copper, it's all there, and made, yeah, really, really good money. Um, So some of the best trades I've had have been the planned exit before I went into the trade. one trade I didn't go into, which a friend went into and made an obscene amount of money, was another terrible company called Big Gun, um, which they were producing videos for shops, um, you know, but doing on a massive scale. So when I did the email, uh, sorry, the um, all corporate, all CEOs are corporate criminals unless proven avatar, uh, other, you know, otherwise, his name came up, the CEO. I think someone was running. It was, you know, red flags everywhere. And I said, look, I can't invest in this stock. Um, and eventually it was proved that, you know, the cash the cash foresees with all this cash pouring out was a fabrication. Uh, but didn't stop the stock going from, I think, $0.80 cents to
0: $5. I think it's a really good example of the, the capital allocation, the importance of and depending on what the purpose and motivation of your trade is, isn't it? You could have um, seen that, like you mentioned with the insurance company, you could see that it's not necessarily a quality company, but there's going to be a catalyst and being mindful of what the entrance entrance and exits are for you.
2: Yeah, well, I think at that stage you could read, I would be, I'd read into the investigations into cold calling insurance industry and what the government was going to do and there's a research paper about it. So you can read all that information if you just Google, you just Google um, government, uh, you know, uh, what would you say? Sort of government um, government looking into insurance industry, blah, 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 into Google, and keep doing that until you find all the, you know, um, papers on it or, or the actual commentary on it. And, yeah, just you do your research, you get a feeling and say, oh, these guys, you know, freedom insurance, shit, this looks pretty... This looks pretty dodgy, but it's working for the moment. So, I mean, the only look, the only caveat I'll say on that is that you know you can get caught in the trade. But um not that mean that the stock bite?
0: Well, some some horrible really news critical.
2: might come out, and then the stock goes into a trading halt. So that is, yeah, obviously it is one risk when you're investing in in that uh, that sort of trade. I'm not not at all recommending people go into crap trades. <laughs> making money out of rubbish, but I'm just saying a lot of people made a lot of money out of a lot of rubbish. Absolutely. And just going back to something you mentioned earlier
0: was that the challenges and the differences approach you've had to do managing more money than what you started out with. Do you have any sort of thoughts or tips on how people can take the
2: advantage, I guess, of having a smaller account and what? Yeah. The, they might approach? I, I've thought about this quite a lot and, and I'm helping my daughter at the moment. So, and she's just got a small amount of money and she's been more successful than not, which is good Uh, because it's really great if if you hear all these people that said, yeah, people that don't know about the stock market, you know, their friends and relatives and say, oh, that's so dangerous. And then, you know, someone goes into it and they've got 10 grand and they've got some bad advice and they blow that up. Well, have a guess what? They probably don't ever want to go back to the stock market. So it's really, really important when you're starting off with a small amount of capital that you build that capital or have a win. Um, Because I think that would, it sets you up to be more interested in doing more research and say, Hey, this is actually working. I can probably make some money out of doing this. So if, if I was starting off with let's say 20 grand or 10 grand or 20 grand um, I would really look at trading stocks as opposed to investing long-term and trading stocks means you're trying to find small micro caps that have got uh, momentum behind them. There's a lot of talk about them and I absolutely do technical analysis and learn how to chart. And learn how to read charts which is really really important um so that's important from entry points and exit points uh so to stop you over trading i'd probably allocate a small amount of money to maybe a one long-term position and say look i'll set that aside that's my best stock i love it so you got one long-term position or one or two and then use the rest trying to build up your capital through trading.
0: Okay. And is it fair to say that some of the same techniques that you might approach to identify a good long-term hold would be still helpful with that sort of short-term approach. Absolutely. You're just taking advantage of the volatility in the share price whilst hopefully your thesis plays out as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And another good thing is to, if you like a stock a lot, see, the problem is you, you find all these different stocks and you go, oh, I should have bought that. And ever guess what? You forget about them after a month. Right, you go. Oh shit, should have gone into that one. Oh damn. My brother taught me this. If you want to keep yourself interested in the stock, but you're not ready to buy, just buy, you know, a couple of hundred bucks worth of stock. So it's on. it' actually there. So it's, every day you're looking at it.
1: A pilot buy. Yeah. Yeah,
2: it's actually there. It's not just on your watch list. You actually own a tiny bit of this stock. So you're actually forced to. To actually focus on it. So that's for a good stock that you haven't made up your mind yet about buying, but you think you probably will buy. I'd probably recommend, you know, get a small position to keep you interested in it. Oh, that's fantastic. And some really
0: tangible thoughts and ideas that people can consider. You mentioned technical analysis. Do you have any good starting points for people there when you suggest they sort of start out with understanding basic chart patterns?
2: Yeah, um, I think absolutely you've got to read encyclopedia of, chart patterns by thomas bolkowski and he basically backtracked chart patterns you know of companies over i think five years and came up with all the different different type of chart patterns and and said you know these were successful this for this percentage of time these were unsuccessful and came you know came back with a whole list of patterns which you know in the balance of the probability going to be more successful than others um So that's really, really important, especially for um, entry points and exit points and understanding, you know, for shares in a momentum trade, if it's going higher, um, is it rolling over or is that just a a flag pattern that is basically a continuation of the trend? So I spent a lot of work um, on doing charts and there's another book which I read, uh, which is the Japanese candlestick charting Um, by Steve Neeson, I think it is. Um, So that's another really, really good book. Uh, You know, it's a contemporary guide to the ancient investment techniques of the Far East. Um, So with those two books, you you probably learn as much as you need to know about, you know, chart patterns. And you sort of combine that approach
0: to you with your, those techniques to you with your approach is the fundamental analysis of the, the company
2: itself and then the technical analysis to help you Absolutely. So it's, it's more to try and find, you know, because I'm, I guess I'm a value investor. I'm, you know, I've done some momentum trades, but it, it, I find it hard to do momentum trades. You know, I buy, you know, I'll buy the stock. It's going high. i keep buying. It's going higher. You know, we all think it's going to go down if it's well, you know, I, it's difficult because I'm not a natural momentum trader. So I struggle with those sort of trades. So I'm more, more of a value investor. So, I would look at a chart and and try to look for a reversal pattern when it when a company has sort of come off you know a good quality company has got trashed you know it's had a bad six months but it looks like it's not going to keep going um, you know Beach Petroleum is a good example that got to forty two cents when oil price was you know ten dollars um, I think it's like two fifty now or something. And you can start to get a feel of, of the bottom, looking at the volume, just going back and forth, going through all the patterns of, you know, reversal um, patterns for bottoms, you know, triple bottoms and all, all, all different types of patterns. And so you, you can probably put and invest with a little bit more confidence, just mainly on the, when you're buying and ma- when you're selling is, is the main, main uh, benefit of technical analysis.
1: Terrific. Ivan, I think you've really given some absolute pearls for listeners. Is there anything else that you wanted to cover off? And then I guess it's mandatory for all guests to have a identified 10-bag <laughs> or talk their book for a little bit. So you have to be under the microscope. Oh, Look, I think,
2: what can I say? I, I think if you can find and seek information from people smarter than yourself and be curious, always be curious trying to seek out more experienced investors, better investors than yourself. Um, You know, look for good fund managers. They're putting information in their newsletters. They're saying why they bought this stock when they bought it. Yeah, sure, they've already bought it, so they're promoting the stock. We all get that, but it doesn't mean the stock's finished, it's run. Um, You know, listen to Livewire, you know, because that's basically the fund managers are talking about different stocks. Listen to you guys, Alan Edmonds, he's fantastic. That was great. And just try and develop or find a style that, is, that resonates with yourself to do with the psychology of money, how you approach money, your skills in charting, your identifying themes. It's like saying be your own man. You, you, you really need to find who you are as an investor. I think that's the most important than just, you know, I said about brokers, the worst thing is to, you know, take tips from a broker and, you know, you don't take the tip and he says, oh, Ivan, you know that stock I told you about, you know, it doubled. And you go, oh, great. And then that's all, you know, it's all anxiety. It's all It's all negative. It's, it's you know, I'm not saying they all do it, but the less noise that you can blank out from from information sources that aren't sort of acting in your interests, I think that's the better. So it's like anything in life. You've got to you've got to make the journey and you've got to find out, but you can get a lot of help on the way.
0: Ah thanks. That's very helpful.
2: We'll put some links to the
0: books you mentioned there in the show notes so people can find them easily.
2: Excellent. Oh, Ivan quickly what's
1: your what's one code you, you like or you think it might be worth a look?
2: Oh look okay, so I'm talking about this from a microcap cap investor point of view for your your, your listeners. I'm not saying you know because obviously I'm thinking people that listen to your podcast aren't sort of wanting someone to recommend Woolworths or Telstra. Um, so a little company. I haven't invested in this company yet, so it's 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 a it's a good recommendation because I'm it's I'm not conflicted, but I'm watching it. There's a little company called Mobilicom. Um, which uh, has got a four mesh capability um, and for 4G. So they can automatically set up a 4G site without any towers anywhere in the world, which is obviously for search and rescue missions or for, you know, offshore drilling when they want to sort of an, an internet work. and they embed technology into drones. So they've, Israeli company that flowed in in Australia and their revenue at the moment is about 4 million a year. I think they've got a market cap of 28 million and I think they've got the potential to be a very successful stock, but only the main reason being is that it's a, it's a very, very good theme. It's a growing theme, what they're doing and they're very, very well managed company. Um, the negative is they haven't reached break even quite yet, and the second thing is I don't know the acceleration uh, dynamics of their revenue. Um, but I think once you know, as Ellen Edmonds said, "Watches the four C." You know, if revenue goes up twenty percent each each time the four C's come out, I think they've got a lot of potential and one that I will invest in probably in a later stage if they actually um, accelerate their revenue.
0: Oh, fantastic. I should disclose there, I do hold some Oberlycom shares myself, so I certainly hope that that thesis comes true down the track. Well, thanks again for your time and coming on the show, Ivan. I'm sure people will get a lot from your experience that you've shared and some of the things that you've learned along the way. Thank you so much for your
1: time, Ivan. It's been a pleasure having you on and uh, I think there's been an amazing amount of uh, wealth and knowledge that you've been sharing with everyone, so we do appreciate it.
2: Well, look, I hope I can have added something. Um, I've been pretty impressed with your other guests, so I'm not sure how I measure up, but hopefully um, people will listen.
0: No, doubt at all they will. I'm sure people will get a lot out of it. Thank you very much again, Ivan. Appreciate
2: it. Okay, we'll catch up.
0: Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of this show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.